0: Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Thank you to all the school staff listening. The work that you do has never been more important to the communities you serve. So, um, before we begin, as ever, just a quick reminder that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around in- issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in depth, authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, please check out thekeysupport.com. So, today I'm really pleased to have Sinead McBreaty with us. Uh, Sinead is CEO of Education Support who work directly to help teachers and leaders in schools and are obviously doing a lot of work just now during the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to be talking about the many ways in which the education profession really needs support while schools are partially open, and we're also going to take a broader look at teacher well-being as well. So welcome Sinead, thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thanks a million for the invitation, Caroline, delighted to be here.
0: Great stuff. Now, just just in case we do have any listeners who who don't know about education support and what it does. Could you give us a little bit more detail about what you do?
1: So education support's been around for 143 years, remarkably. enough. Um, And when we started in the 1870s, we were dealing with uh, people that, well, primarily teachers at that time, uh, who were suffering from tuberculosis and from nervous breakdown and from destitution. So if we swap out TV for coronavirus uh, and rename the nervous breakdown and destitution, we're still pretty much in the same business all this time later. And mm. um, we offer services directly to schools to help them with well-being for their staff teams. We continue to provide support for individuals through a financial grant program for anyone who is working in education who's in hardship, uh, and uh, a, an emotional support helpline on 08, zero eight thousand five six two five six one. Anyone can call it, and on the other end, you'll find uh, an accredited counsellor who can give Free and can have a conversation with you. It's a free and confidential service uh, available to anyone working in education. Um, and beyond that, for individuals, we're just at the moment uh, launching some new video resources to talk to the profession about issues that have been arising uh, during the COVID 19 crisis. So, in particular, we're starting out conversations about anxiety, about uh, grief and loss. And what we can do to support the people that work with us. And then we'll, further in the series, we'll pick up issues of isolation and other matters as they arise, depending on the time horizon for the whole situation. Um, beyond that, we do some research work and policy work. We advocate, fundamentally, we advocate for healthier workplaces in education. Uh, and, and really, what we want to do is uh, make a contribution to helping improve the overall health of the workforce. And we believe that's going to improve the education
0: that everyone uh, the pupils and students are seeking great and you know as i said at the beginning there i imagine you've seen a huge increase in in both the the calls around kind of emotional support and well-being but also um applications for those hardship grants can you give us a, a flavor of, of of how the last uh, few weeks have been for you
1: Surely. um, So we've had our highest ever level of grant applications during this window. And you won't be surprised to hear that that's overwhelmingly from supply teachers. Mm. Um, We've also had applications from term time only contractors. Uh, But, you know, there are a lot of people who work in education who, even though landlords are not meant to be evicting people, are being evicted from their homes. Uh, or who are struggling to pay the rent and are living with a genuine fear of being made homeless. Um, And we're certainly dealing with an awful lot of people who are hungry and not able to feed themselves or their families. So we are giving, uh, we are making hardship grants to as many as we can. We're processing those. We've put extra people into that team. We're trying to process those applications as quickly as we can. Uh, And one of the main things we're giving to people at the moment uh, is, is supermarket vouchers to help people to buy food. Um, so that's very busy for anyone who's listening who uh, knows anyone in education who's worked in education who is currently in hardship please send them through to education support we can make grants and we will make grants to uh, help those people to deal with the circumstances they're in while they wait for other funding to come through from government sources
0: and I think Do, sorry I'm just going to say there I think it is You know, could be surprising to some listeners the extent to which those hardship grants are needed—not just at times times like this, but kind of day in, day out for people working in the education sector.
1: Well, indeed, and there are all sorts of circumstances that lead people to come to us uh, to see if we can help them. But you know, there's a very significant demographic among our grant applicants, which is um, women in their mid-30s to mid-40s who have dependent children who have had a relationship breakdown or who feel they need to leave a relationship for their own safety and don't have the resources to safely move themselves and their families to another, another place so they face homelessness or they are unable to stay and work because of the costs associated with staying in teaching and um, so in those cases those are our Bread and butter grants, if you like, um, we will support those individuals to make that transition uh, and to get themselves and their families into a safe place where they can then carry on uh, with their lives after after they've got to some safety.
0: Right, thank you for that um, further detail there. And just just moving on to think about about listeners who are who are working in in schools at the moment. What practical steps can school staff Take to look after themselves personally, and then also their their colleagues at this difficult time.
1: Well, I guess I, I, I'll i come to. I've got sort of five suggestions mm. for people to think about in terms of what they might do. But I I would also share with you some of the big themes that we've heard from our helpline uh, and our conversations with teachers over the past few weeks, because I think right. that gives a flavour of where. Uh, people need support and uh, unsurprisingly top of the list loss and grief is very significant for people Um, and that comes in a variety of flavors I think there is the obvious loss uh, for for those who are bereaved that's uh, you know the most acute loss that people are suffering Um, there are people who have been bereaved because they've lost someone that they love to COVID-19 but of course there are uh people dying of other unnatural causes in the meantime but we are not in a place to go through our traditional bereavement rituals mm. and this is having quite a significant effect on on people at this time um, so there's a few different elements to that and even outside of bereavement actually one of the ma- you know one of the very big things that we've seen emerge over the last few weeks is is all of the feelings that we associate with loss and grief but people are not feeling them because someone has died. They're feeling it about the loss of their way of life. Mm. Uh, you know, and I think all of us can recognize um, the sorts of, I suppose, the shock in some ways that affects us when we recognize that something very simple that we've not really paid a lot of attention to in our normal daily lives is actually quite sacred. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I was so <laughs> sort of quite stunned to find that I really miss my daily commute. Mm-hmm. uh you know there's a sort of moment of 20 minutes on a victoria line tube where i don't have any kids nobody's expecting anything of me and i either stare into the middle distance daydreaming or i read my economist but any which way whatever i do in that 20 minute slot it is sacrosanct to my <laughs> well-being and um, and of course now there's never a moment where i'm out of uh either reach for my kids or for work um, and it's a very different relationship to time and to personal space. So that's a very almost trite example. But our way of life has been so fully disrupted, mm. our inability to connect with the people that we love um, and to, to just do the, the, the normal day to day things that uh, make us happy is a very significant loss for people. So I think okay. loss and grief is a big theme. Uh, we've already talked about financial distress. And of course, apart from the people who themselves have uh, experienced uh, problems with their, their, their own, either not getting paid through work or there being a delay in their pay for work directly. There are also plenty of households where um, somebody's partner has lost their job. And so whilst they may still have an income, uh, suddenly teachers and uh, teaching support staff will be finding themselves as the primary earner in their family. And the family standard of living will take a significant hit or they may struggle to cover their debts. Um, So I think financial distress goes beyond just those directly affected by uh, unemployment or being furloughed uh, uh, right now. Um, Other issues that we are hearing, fear and anxiety, obviously about the coronavirus itself and how it might affect people and their loved ones. Uh, For those who are working on school sites, there is still uncertainty about Uh, protective strategies Mm. and how well they do or don't work. Social distancing, you know, is problematic on school sites. And certainly for those who are working with the youngest age groups, they have concerns about using protective strategies around young children because young children find that quite anxious making. Mm. Um, And so there's a lot of professionals who are doing their best to be accessible to the kids, and then worrying privately about the risks they're taking with their own health or that of their their own wider families
0: Um, especially things like masks actually quite intimidating seeing somebody in a mask especially for a small child yeah
1: absolutely and if it's somebody who you know you're familiar with in a very particular way and suddenly the Um, it's not that we can't wear protective equipment around young children, but it needs to be handled very carefully mm. and lots of professionals will take the choice not to do that because they just don't feel it's it's they don't feel comfortable. Um, and there are a whole host of other things, you know, uh, isolation is a big issue for educators are really, really social. Their work is is so social, of course. Uh, all of the interpersonal contact that goes part and parcel of every day. Um, But also there are issues about identity. You know, if I'm not with my students, if I'm not in the room with them, actually, how am I teaching? and How am I a teacher? Um, And that's before we get to, you know, in some schools, unfortunately, there is significant pressure from leaders to... um, uh, you know, either to get on with planning for next year, or there's uh, relatively significant levels of surveillance being used to track what teachers are doing. Uh, there's adjusting to homeworking. Either you know, if you have kids in your house, that you know, you and I will both recognise mm-hmm. is a challenge. Um, but of course, if you're a young professional and house chair, you may be in your bedroom trying to do everything, and that in itself can be quite stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's concerns about what might be happening off grid, if you like, where um, you know we can talk about the deprivation gap and the fact that some children are at risk of falling behind. But there are also vulnerable children who um, may not be getting the support that they need in this window. And this stuff plays quite heavily on the minds of teachers who are uh, who, who understand what's going on in those situations. So I suppose I say all of that to kind of try and give an idea of the range of issues that are in the mix. Mm. Um, And so when we talk about what people can do for their own well-being, um, some of, not every strategy is applicable to everybody. Um, And there are some very specific issues that people will need to get very particular and specialist support with. Um, But in terms of practically, what can people do to look after themselves? Uh, i promised you a list of five so so (laughs) here we go Um, i think the first thing that is really important is for us to try and hold some perspective keeping things in perspective sounds very easy but with you know the range of issues that are going on it can be very easy to get wrapped up in something in particular that is distressing or uh, anxiety inducing um and so trying to find a way to come back and say okay look i might be concerned about the economic and social issues that are going to arise from this crisis but i realize i can't i can't deal with those at this point in time so i'm going to choose not to dwell on them uh, and i'm going to try and put those away and attend to some of the things that i can really make a difference in so what i can meaningfully do for work how i can make sure that i stay well myself and how I can stay connected to the people that I love and care about. Um, so I think it's really important to try and remember that holding a, a, a perspective holding these issues in perspective will help us to avoid catastrophizing hmm. uh, or not being able to sleep at night, getting caught down in, in worry loops. Um, And if there are issues that we really are struggling with, then uh, writing them down and just analysing what we think is what data there is to support that worry or to maybe suggest that it might not be something we need to be so concerned about right now, that can be a tactic that can help people to regain a little bit of perspective. So I think perspective is number one. Um, Number two is routine. And... We we'll love heard, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot being discussed about routine, and pe- people are talking about it far and wide. I think it's important to note that it doesn't mean sticking to a rigid timetable. Uh, a, a good routine means getting up and getting dressed, eating at regular times, marking the beginning and the end of your work time, uh, having kind of regular catch ups with with colleagues and managers or the people that you're looking after, uh, and, and for those times to be relatively predictable. Um, and I think also maybe doing a degree of daily planning that we're not really used to, of just setting some some relatively small objectives. The things at the beginning of the day, setting out what it is that we'd like to achieve by the end of the day, can be very helpful because it's very easy to get lost in uh, the sort of I suppose the distance and. Mm the communication and the noise and the social media and all of the other things that go on during the day. they can really help us if we have a sort of target for ourselves that will support us to get through some useful work.
0: Oh.
1: And I'll, and I'll get this done today.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting as well with, um, uh, you know, educational professionals very unused to being able to sit at a desk all day and actually have that day stretching out ahead of them you know Absolutely. much more used to timetables regular meetings which lessons they're teaching when and as you were saying at the beginning there to have that structure removed is is very destabilizing in a way that might not be the case for other other sectors and other types of work
1: I think that's right and i think that the sitting down you know the sitting down at a computer mm. we're on screen so much at the moment um it is that that in itself is quite disorienting and can feel physically really uncomfortable if you're not used to sitting mm. up and teachers generally aren't um, you know to suddenly find yourself sitting so much can be really uncomfortable so i think there's also i think it's important to to make sure that uh people have permission to you know get up and and, and take a thought with them you could be working on something that you know requires some thinking there's no reason not to do that thinking while you're walking or out taking some air somehow and then come back and sit down and write up whatever it is that you have been mulling away um but trying to separate yourself from the chair and the computer occasionally is a really good habit i think um I guess the other the other points in that in those five are the third one is around just maintaining social connection I think we 're all nobody is surprised to miss those they love, but actually sometimes we find ourselves missing people we don 't even love you know some irritating colleagues who are just a normal part of our day uh, and we don 't encounter them anymore. We can find ourselves missing those um, I think it's really important for people to think about who it is that energizes them in their in their school network, in the colleague network, and mm-hmm. try and reach out and get in touch with those. And also think about who is it that I can energize? Who can I make a difference to? There will be somebody on the staff team who, if they received a call or an email from you, would be thrilled. And if you can find ways to have some, have some reciprocity across the staff team about who reaches out to who, maybe not always in the most obvious friendship, bonds either but but across the staff team that can be very helpful um practicing self-care is really important and self-care often when i talk to educators about this stuff people wince slightly and i think uh self-care can be read as self-indulgence sometimes Mm. um because educators are very oriented to looking after the people that they uh, are there to educate but actually it's a fundamental element of professionalism to look after yourself we there is enough research to tell us that that good rest and good self-care will improve our performance we will do a better job if we have attended to our own needs whether that's taking time to kind of nourish ourselves with the hobbies that, that, that please us or doing something to calm down uh, meditation or yoga or gardening or whatever it might be um, But there, you know, self-compassion is correlated to stronger or to, to better mental health uh, and symptoms of, like depression and anxiety and stress are lower in people who will take the time to look after themselves in that way so given that we're all vulnerable actually in this window to some, to some extent we're all vulnerable to low mood mm. it's a sort of preventative action to make that time now and not, not only do it at a point where you feel low but actually just build into your day-to-day. You know, I'm sitting here uh, with my with my family and working and all the rest of it just like everybody else is, but I finally picked up the guitar after years. And so I try every other day to, to you know, play a few tunes and, and the kids come in and join and we have a little sing-along. And it's, you know, oh. it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible music. It's really awful. But it really pleases me mm. uh, to be doing that again. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that we can do. It doesn't have to be a big elaborate thing at all but self-care is really important um and the the last of those five points that we can all do to look after ourselves really is around Mm -hmm. mental health hygiene so it is true taking exercise eating nutritious food moderating your alcohol and your sugar intake doing your best to get a good night's sleep not spending too much time on social media these things all genuinely do correlate to better mental health Mm -hmm. so it's a kind of easy win to just manage that Uh, Right now, Um, this is my work is to know about this stuff. But I am not one of the world's great athletes. Um, But I, recognizing that physical exercise is really important, you know, as soon as lockdown started, my partner and my two kids, we we kind of had a conversation about how we would make this work. And so we've agreed that we go to the park every morning before breakfast for a family run. And we won't be breaking any records. Uh, and I, you know, I doubt our pace is even going to get us terribly fit, but at least we do it routinely out of a commitment to being well, rather than any love or joy in running. I hasten to add. Um, so I think these things are really important, uh, beyond that, practicing gratitude, trying to focus on the positive stuff, finding ways to be creative, even if that is rearranging a room or repainting a wall. Um, talking about feelings with people that you trust and not feeling that you have to suppress them but but recognizing that uh feelings of distress feelings of anger of sadness of fear of irritation even with your beloved children these are all really normal feelings in this situation and it's it's really important that we allow ourselves to accept that and don't judge ourselves and don't feel shame and don't feel embarrassment about it because if we can if we can accept it we can then recognize the feeling decide how we want to respond to it and then move on where i think if we suppress them we give ourselves a problem further down the road so i guess those those caroline would be my kind of top five suggestions for what people might do to look after themselves
0: great well lots of lots of really practical suggestions in there and really yeah interested to that 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 point at the the end kind of leads me to thinking about how people um, sometimes feel guilty for feeling upset about things because they do it in this comparative manner around, you know, I haven't had a loved one die, so I shouldn't be allowed to feel sad or anxious about these things, for example. And just just trying to think, as, as you say, in a profession that's always putting other people first how, how to actually take time to, to recognize and address your own, own emotions and and see them as just as valid as, as anyone else's um, really really useful advice there. Um,
1: I, I think there is that bit around um, you know we would say to kids at the drop of a hat that, that they're allowed and indeed we are allowed to have any feelings we have and we can have those without judgment. What we choose to do with those feelings is another matter. But but having the
0: feeling there's no shame or embarrassment. Mm. And thinking about, in particularly, um, school leaders, a, a, a lot of whom have worked you know, tirelessly, day day and night, across holiday periods. You know, many many more in school uh, to to sort of protect other other staff and and leading leading a, com- a whole community. They've got parents pupils and 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 everybody waiting waiting for them to to make decisions um you know this is this is the toughest the toughest time of their professional lives you know how could you have done a training course (laughs) to to prepare you for this what what would you like to say to those people about about how you kind of lead during this this national crisis and 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 support and support your team i mean i guess
1: I talk to my own friends who are head teachers and i am humbled by what they've done and what they are doing i'm all of them and they have been and continue to be heroic um you know our I, I think when the dust settles on all of this how we reflect on our public servants i i hope will be uh, a significant shift from perhaps how we thought about uh, all of the public services on, on them, you know in, in recent history um, so from my position of being in awe of that group I'm always loath to give advice to uh, people who clearly know far more than I do but, but I, there's probably a couple of things that I'd add from a, a mental health and a well-being perspective um, something that uh, I notice with senior leaders in education and I suspect it's true of senior leaders in, in any environment but maybe slightly more so in education there, there's a big drive to be strong uh head teachers, senior leaders are used to carrying a lot of responsibility and to uh, being stoic in the face of workload and demand and you know the difficulty of managing in a relatively austere climate. they're they're, they're well versed in how to do these things. but there is a sense of I, you know I'm a, I'm a school leader, I will be strong, that's what I do. And actually that's probably really unhelpful in this window I think going back to what we were just saying a few minutes ago it is of course really okay to have feelings but it's also and it's really important if you're a leader to recognize that you can't carry everyone else around you you aren't actually a superhero although you are behaving like one Mm. but you need to know that you can only do what you can do and you can only control what you control can control and then you need to take some time off um, and of course, that's a lot easier said than done. You know, when, when when the school food vouchers over Easter come in on the bank holiday weekend and you spend your weekend trying to sort out how families who are hungry are going to get access to those resources, that that's not a time when you feel like you can take time off. Um, but somewhere in the midst of this chaos, school leaders do need to pause. And I think taking a break and holding some discipline about switching off is really, really hard. You know, these these people are adrenalized and wired at the moment. But again, going back to what we know about rest and performance, if you can find a way to carve out some rest for yourself, you you will be able to do make a better fist at the job tomorrow as a result of that rest. So I think that's probably a, a main uh, piece of advice for me. And I think beyond that... There are fantastic school leaders up and down the country who are, you know, creating the best case studies there ever will have been written on being human and being empathic and outstanding leadership. And we will hear those stories over the coming months and years. There are some school leaders who worry about whether they're getting it right. And I would just say to them, Keep doing what you're doing, but remember, it is about it is about being human. It is about being empathic. It is about connecting and man- maintaining those relationships uh, in your staff team and in your community. And beyond that, trying to be present to your own loved ones because, you know, this was the Easter holiday break. Most teaching professionals I know crawl to that on their hands and knees and then get a break and a rest and try to recuperate to go for the last push into the summer term well, many have not had that recuperation. So, you know, they might have gone into the Easter break running on empty. There has been no recuperation. And it's really important to, even if it feels difficult to make any time, it's really important to try and do that now and to have the opportunity to spend some time and spend some energy and effort on your own family and those that you love around you.
0: No, that's good. that's good advice. And, and and thinking about that that role of the... The leader and kind of strategic um, leadership in a in a school. One of the things that is is making that quite quite difficult over the last week or so has been this increased speculation about when schools will go back, what form that that will take, and a kind of yeah another another layer of thinking about how to to manage through this um, crisis. What are you? What are your thoughts about that? That anxiety and and the, that is caused by that uncertainty, but also the sort of issues that you anticipate um, school you know, education professionals will experience when they when schools eventually do go back.
1: I think the I think the anxiety that the people. Uh have expressed is really understandable. And I think for all the issues that we talked about earlier, you know, there is a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty and loss and grief. It's all in the mix. And uh, for people to be concerned about uh, being asked to go back before they're ready is really, really understandable. I think it's a great example as well, though, of some of the the noise in the social and political discourse that can Uh, upset us and put us off balance and actually a great reason to not engage too much Mm. in that the when you know i will have you know believe me Caroline. i have very strong personal views on when schools should and shouldn't open but i can hold them as tightly as i want it's not going to ultimately affect the decisions that are made and so i need to really put them to the side and Trying, it's not that to say that I can't have those views and I don't have very legitimate mm. views, but um, I need to kind of put them to the side and not be put off balance every time there's a, somebody makes somebody in the public domain makes a comment and says we should be going back at the, in the first week of May, because that really leaves me vulnerable to uh, becoming anxious and, and feeling fear more than I would wish to. So I think it's one of those places where we need to decide it's not something we can control. If we're in conversation with people who are making those decisions, then absolutely we should inform them of our points of view and of the evidence for and against whatever those decisions might be. But actually I need to come back to thinking about what are the things I can control. And that's going to be about how I uh, maintain the relationship with uh, the students and families in my community, how we keep them connected to the school community. Uh, how we provide them with ca- appropriate care and support and feedback in this window. And maybe for some senior leaders, it's also about beginning to think about what would need to happen in my community, in my school, at the point where we come back. And you know, this again is not a one size fits all. There are some very, some, some communities that are profoundly uh, affected by loss because of the way that this virus has operated in their local community. Um, or there are communities that have a significant degree of deprivation and what this has meant for that community is very different from what it's meant for a more affluent community. There's an awful lot of contextual information, I think, required to start to work out how, how the transition back is going to affect people. But I guess what we do know is that any transition will be difficult there will, I, I think it it is not dramatic to say that there will be a, a degree of trauma in communities, mm. uh, and that might be that might be a, 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 a sort of a trauma that's that can be discussed and processed and dealt with, or for some schools, you know, the schools that have lost head teachers and teachers, it will be more substantial than that, and. Uh, So I suppose recognising that there will be a degree of disorientation, irrespective of the extent of loss, and in certain circumstances, there will need to be a really uh, serious amount of thinking that goes into the strategy to bring people back together again, because it won't be business as usual on day one.
0: Yeah, and I I think, as you say, there's um, actually... You know, I've I've never met a school leader that doesn't know their community and ultimately know what's right. They can be buffeted by, you know, political, national and local decision making or, you know, other other things at times and on certain issues. But actually here, as you say, there's something really um, compelling about, you know, you, you know, yeah, these people actually do know. Um, what what the right thing is to do and in many situations they're having to take that leap make that decision and do that thing because it needs doing then rather than waiting for the for the national piece but then there will be these things that are completely out of out of school leaders control and it's about how you kind of meet those when they yeah. come indeed yeah um so just just stepping away from from the current situation for a moment, um, you know, you do your annual well-being index, and you know, it, it's, I think it's it's fair to say we're having this conversation about about teacher well-being at heightened time, but. It, 78% of all education professionals are experiencing either behavioural, psychological or physical symptoms due to their work, according to your your research. And these numbers seem to rise year on year. Why do you think that is?
1: It is true that certainly over the last three years in our uh, annual survey, we've seen the key indicators around stress and uh, poor mental health ratcheting upward. Uh, at a rate in some instances that's quite concerning. So we know we're already dealing with a, a, a context in the sector where stress is is relatively high. When we ask uh, educators what it is that's driving the stress, they, they come back fairly clearly to tell us that it's about workload, it's about work-life balance, uh, behaviour is an issue. Uh, when you dig deeper, it's less behaviour actually, it's more about the consistency of uh, schools' policies around mm-hmm. behaviour, um, but behaviour is definitely in the mix. And trust—I think um, educators feeling at the micro level, not necessarily trusted by their line manager or in the school context—and more broadly, that sense of is is the profession trusted uh, at a societal level—is is also in the mix. Um, so that comes directly through from the research. When when we kind of stand back and look at it, I guess I, I see. Uh, sort of a number of vicious circles happening. I think that over the past 25 years, we've seen uh, teachers have lower control, less autonomy um, as their professional identity has been reshaped in line with policy. And often I think lower self-efficacy, so less less sense that they're able to make a difference Mm. compared to perhaps what, what was the case in the past. And I think when that happens, you know an individual's purpose becomes di- diluted they can see less clearly what it is they're doing that makes a difference their, their job satisfaction plummets um and when that happens they have less capacity for relationships and for collegiality all of which is really important in education for for strong resilience but they will feel less well supported because they haven't got the capacity for that and i think across this whole piece uh overwork has become normalized in education it's just everybody mm. accepts it as the norm and it's you know, it's what, there, there isn't, you know, we talk about, even when we talk about reducing work hours, it might be reducing the top end, you know, the people who are doing 60 hours a week, let's get them down to 50, as though that was completely fine. Um, and self-care is seen as a bit of self-indulgence. And I think some of those issues that, you know affect each other there's some causal relationships there and maybe others aren't exactly directly causal but I think all of that is creating some vicious circles that impact um on well-being across the sector
0: taking that that situation into account what what more do you think could be done either a policy level or in schools themselves to support education staff
1: I think from the government, I would love to see policymakers figure out how they can promote trust. Uh, and I think, you know, if there's a silver lining to the current situation, this should be an absolute gift to policymakers to allow them to celebrate the profession and to demonstrate that we really truly value our education workforce. Um, and I think doing that, I think promoting that trust and, and respect will improve the self-esteem, the well-being of, um, of the workforce and in turn will have a positive impact on recruitment and retention as well as the outcomes for pupils. So I think for me that's a big one it, even if it is uh, perhaps not the most easy to measure mm. uh, I still think it's really important for the sector. Um, I think like many others I'm of the view that accountability needs to be reshaped and I think you know, it cannot be beyond the wit of mankind that we evolve accountability in a way that still uh, you know provides some of that the function that accountability was designed in the first place to do, but involves in a way that builds teacher efficacy and development and doesn't just create this horrendous and unproductive tension and anxiety that we see in the system over and over again. Uh, I think we can have accountability, but I think it needs to be co-created uh, much more with the profession and be, a be- and be developmental rather mm. than judgmental and, uh, and often... Um, uh, finding ways to make people feel bad about what they do. Um, and I think the last one for me that, that policymakers could do uh, is, to, is to really deal with overwork, not just, and I know that there are uh, civil servants who've worked, put their hearts into trying to deal with this issue of workload. Um, but I think politically, there needs to be political capital put behind uh, supporting healthy working practices and boundaries and, and, you know, celebrating that as good practice and, and that we should have case studies that, that are fettered in the media around, look, isn't this brilliant, here's a really healthy place to work. And I say that because I think, you know, teachers and educators with better health will be more present to the pupils and students they work with and they will be fundamentally just better able to do their jobs. Um, and I think it's kind of that simple. So at a, at a policy level, that would be what I would love to see happen. And from schools, I think it's about leadership and culture. You know, we go in and out of schools all the time talking about well-being. And there are things people can do. There are, um, you know, they can listen to staff and they can make changes and address the issues that matter to staff uh, and put in place various well-being strategies. But all of that is dependent on a positive and open leadership uh, and, and culture within the school. So I guess when, when there's a really clear purpose... Uh, for hard work, educators don't shirk it. They're very happy to get on and work hard to make a, a difference and to create meaningful outcomes for the students and pupils that they work with. But when we ask them to work extremely long hours to comply with some idea of what external uh, stakeholders are requesting of the school, that's much less inspiring. And so, a leadership, uh, a leadership culture and practice that is that is open, that is transparent. Um, and has that clarity of purpose is, I think, really important uh, in schools to help the, ensure that people feel satisfied and purposeful in the work that they do. And for leaders also to demonstrate care. Many do, but uh, there's still a significant uh, proportion of the school leadership com- community that uh, is very command and control and, in inverted commas, old school in its approach. And I think you know that, that's a sort of leadership style that really is outmoded now.
0: And needs to change And um, just um, building on particularly your point around uh, accountability and and changes that that might come as a result of this period uh, to that, do you what do you hope will change um, a, a, as a result of this uh, this crisis that we that we've been through?
1: entering on a daily basis that education support is the limits of flexible working mm. you know the fragility that we see and the hardship that people are in is is distressing and it's not the whole market civilized society let alone the sixth largest economy in the world in my mind so i think that there are some some structural issues uh, with regard to labor rights that probably need to be looked at um, and i think could be looked at because i think there's recognition that that's not okay um, I think the accountability uh, framework will come under increasing scrutiny after all of this uh, and I don't say that in a way that, that, that is trying to demonise anyone and all of that but I think that we have, um, you know, philosophically league tables require somebody to be failing or identified as failing somewhere and that's just philosophically problematic and, and isn't, doesn't really uh, improve society I think There must be better ways that we can uh, create collaboratively between the regulator and the profession approaches that will work and more broadly uh, at a policy level think about the tension between individual and society that we see writ large across our education system in this country i think we can probably find a better accommodation from what we've seen in recent history Hmm. Um, so i would like to imagine in my in my best dreams those things happen Um, I think at a minimum, I think we will see a boost to professional identity, that whole pride and purpose. I think that uh, there are a lot of people up and down the country who are appreciating their schools, their teachers and their head teachers like never before. Mm. Um, You know, the teaching assistants who uh, have the patience of job when sitting with uh, children and, and as parents, when we take on that task, we recognize just the extent of commitment and skill that those individuals have and i think that helps us to uh, appreciate them more i think also well-being has become depoliticized uh, recently uh, and you know when we still have a st- you know, we talked about it earlier even today there are teachers in schools who are not sure whether they are adequately protected adequately safe in the current situation and i think uh, you know there may be a moment of reflection after all this where we swim upstream a little bit in our policy making and try to unpick what are the beliefs that underpin some of our policies, and hold them up in the light of day, and decide whether or not those are still appropriate in the light of the learning from all of this. Um, I think I, I think uh, that that's something that, that almost certainly will happen to some extent, um, and maybe I guess greater collaboration across the piece, uh, and less them and us at all the different levels of policy making and regulation and accountability. Uh, You know, I've heard plenty of stories of uh, teachers and TAs going into schools together with senior leaders during this period of time in order to support the children of key workers. And they talk about an atmosphere that is without hierarchy. They're all in Mm -hmm. it together. Not wanting to use that cliche too much, but, you know, I think that does show us that there are different ways to work collaboratively at all levels in our education system. And I look forward to being able to build on that
0: indeed a, a really hopeful note to end on and um you know we would we were talking the other day actually weren't we about um more humanity um you know across all of our lives and interactions and and just sort of recognizing that actually how is how is someone feeling today is not a trivial way to start a conversation you know it is it is actually going to have an impact on how do children in this class learn? How do the the people in this school do their jobs in a time when they have experienced trauma? Um, you know that is actually going to come first in a way that it hasn't hasn't been allowed to when you know outcomes outcomes and academic you know qu- achievements are are you know the focus of a lot of activity. Um, so yes, let's let's be hopeful. And uh, any, any final messages to our listeners?
1: I think just to say thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for everything you do up and down the country, for each individual child, for each individual school and community. And, you know, those of us who work alongside schools, we appreciate you every day, even if it doesn't always seem that way. But I think now maybe the rest of the country appreciates
0: you as well and you know hold your heads high and thank you for all that you do. And well thank you uh, Sinead for um, talking to us today and thank you to everyone for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key Support for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please do tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or just email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.